California is a precarious place, but far more precarious than the San Andreas Fault. Far more deadly than a sinkhole in the asphalt is the housing crisis in winter rain or summer heat. TAs living in their cars, sleeping in the back seat, but the strike is spreading and with the margins this thin, it's gonna keep on spreading till we win. Hello, welcome to California Dreaming. My name is Priscilla, and every week this podcast will highlight some of the many voices behind the UCSC Wildcat Strike. Since December 2019, UCSC graduate students have been striking in pursuit of a cost of living adjustment, or COLA, to lift themselves out of rent burden and address with urgency issues of housing and food precarity. Each episode in this series features snippets from longer oral history interviews between myself and my fellow Wildcat Strikers, as we discuss issues ranging from their relationship to higher education, to the context behind their decision to join the collective fight for a cost of living adjustment. On today's episode, we'll hear from Carlos Humberto Cruz, a second year PhD student in history at UCSC. Carlos is one of the most visible graduate student activists in the UCSC Wildcat Strike and the Cola for All movement. But before we begin, some notes on the audio. This interview took place on February 26, 2020, at the base of campus at the University of California at Santa Cruz on the Wildcat picket line. This was intentional on our part to really capture the spirit of the picket for the oral record. You may hear music and chanting, background conversations, laughter, occasional solidarity honking from cars driving by the line, and one or two quick readings. With that in mind, let's dive into Carlos' story. At the start of the interview, I asked Carlos to share with me a bit of his background. Yeah, my name is Carlos Humberto Cruz. I was born and raised in the San Fernando Valley, so it's a little bit north of LA, south of Santa Barbara. Um, I grew up in a city called Pacoima and a city called Van Nuys. <clears throat> I had a I had a rocky upbringing where education wasn't wasn't ever uh, the forefront of my of my priorities. Um, so I grew up in, a, in an immigrant community. I grew up um, in a you know single parent household. My mother, my mother was you know raising me on her own. Then she got with my stepdad, and then he got deported. So she had to raise my younger siblings on her own once again. Um, so you know I grew up in that type of household. So with those conditions, you know, poverty was pretty much you know our, our living conditions. So for a long time, um, yeah, I mean I was I was pretty much just on the street on the streets as a as a young kid. As a teenager, um, as a young adult, right, I spent most of my time outdoors, hanging out with you know my friends. I, I mean, I, I jumped into a gang at the age of 13. You know, so my my life was in and out of juvenile hall. Um, I was bouncing around from school to school. So I never really saw higher education as as part of my future of, of my goals. Later in our conversation, I asked Carlos when he first realized that he wanted to continue pursuing higher education. It wasn't until I um, came across professors at the community college level that kind of, you know, it really sparked something in me. They saw they saw some skills, abilities, and talents 
that I've never thought I, that I had, you know, that would translate in the classroom and outside of the classroom. So the first time I really thought about um, attending in the university, thinking about a PhD program was probably when I was, I would say 19, 20 years old. Um, I had finished the sociology class and I think the topic was just really, really intriguing me. I ended up going to the professor's office hours and we were discussing, you know, the material, whatever, whatever we were talking about, just bantering. And I, I just remember pausing, looking around the room and seeing a bunch of, you know, cool art, seeing a bunch of books and, you know, thinking to myself, like, wow, like, this is his job. His job is to, um, to teach, to read, to write, to think, to discuss, you know, things that he, that he feels are important to him. Um, so I thought, my, I thought to myself, like, wow, I would, I would love to, you know, be a professor one day, too. You know, you think about, you know, the, the impact that us humans can, can, you know, wreck on this earth, right? And I think education, I mean, I mean, so far, I mean, at least it seems like the most, the, the least harmful, the least harmful for sure. It always depends on what you're teaching, right? But Carlos would transfer from community college to UCSC for his undergraduate degree. After a few years in the workforce, Carlos returned to UCSC to pursue a graduate degree in history. Godless is a specialist in 20th century U.S.-Mexico borderlands history, and his timely dissertation work centers on the mass deportation of ethnic Mexicans from the United States in the early decades of the 1900s. I came here to study the deportations that occurred during the Great Depression here in the U.S. Um, so about 500,000 to about 2 million uh, people of Mexican descent were were removed from the country. Um, so my personal life kind of translates into my academic interest because, I mean, you know, being from a from an immigrant community, I've like I've just seen people get deported or you know get you know get picked up by ICE either at the job sites. Um, they they came to our neighborhoods. Um, you know, my stepdad's been deported, and just like it's just it's it's part of our life. It's part of our life. This this constant uh, either policing or surveillance and you know, criminalization of people just for, you know, for existing. Um, like, it's just, it's just real. Um. In our interview, I asked Carlos what it was like balancing his dream of pursuing higher education with the grim realities of moving back to Santa Cruz housing market. Now, I mean, I've, I've definitely experienced a lot of different things here, you know. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a wild ride, to say the least. It's just, I mean, almost two years of my time being here, you know, I... My transition from Southern California to it was how's it going, man? To Santa Cruz was rocky. I like the housing market is so difficult that I ended up getting a, a garage that was converted into a studio um, for 1550 um, in Watsonville, in a remote area in Watsonville. Um, I didn't want to take out any loans at the time, so I was working a 24-hour shift, um, 24-hour shifts throughout the week in the graveyard shifts. I would do Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and this is on top of my my first TA ship with a professor that you know pretty much told me that she wasn't interested in uh, training me. This is with you know getting accustomed to to coursework and what it you know, what it looks like at the graduate level at the PhD level, getting accustomed to to like new people, right? My cohort, getting to see like who I gotta who I gotta interact with for the next X amount of years of my life. Uh, and this, you know, a commute to, um, you know, to and from Watsonville. I don't know. It was just, it was just, it was just different coming back with work experience, with a lot more uh, lived experience than before. 
and you know pretty much pursuing the dream that I've that I've come up with in the last six seven years of my life yeah during our interview I asked Carlos how he would summarize the cola movement for folks who were just learning about it and how he would convey the urgency for cost of living adjustment for graduate students like himself I would say I would say like this this uh, this is a fight against poverty that's that's the best way to describe it for me um, it's a fight against poverty it's a fight against uh, indebted servitude um, knowing that you know poverty is not unique to to the larger society um, poverty trends you know goes over the walls into the ivory tower where a lot of us you know are, are in that are in that position to like we grew up from poverty and we're just going to trade one form of it to another one um, which is you know like I said indebted servitude so we see it as urgent we see it as necessary you know necessary to combat to struggle against to try to change it um, yeah and I think this really changes the changes the conversation of how people in the community would see um, this system right that it's that these are systemic issues that have that things need to be changed you know within here too Throughout our conversation, it became clear that for Carlos, the COLA movement held both a promise for a reimagined educational system that placed students first, and calling for urgent action to address the systemic failures of higher education, the most important of which is its growing inaccessibility. Um, I am striking because I believe that we have a chance to to change, you know, the education system as we know it. Um, I've heard a lot of things about, you know, the UC and what it's supposed to mean for the public. And in terms of my experience so far and what I've seen, um, it, just, it just doesn't seem like an accessible place for folks, um, you know, from my background, but, you know, similar backgrounds, working class backgrounds, where, you know, this dream is almost, it's almost impossible for us. Um, so like I mentioned, me working on, you know, the, those hours, but, at the end of the day, at the end of that first, first, those first ten weeks, the first quarter, I felt like dropping out. I felt like I was on the bridge of a, like a total mental, like a mental collapse, right? Where I was just gonna just break down. Um, the stress level was getting to me, you know. This, this uh, expectation to perform at a high level was, you know, starting to get to me. My writing wasn't up to par from what a, you know, what a, a PhD graduate student is supposed to write. Um, the lack of sleep, right? It was all, it was all getting to me. So what I did is I just took um, took out the loans, you know. I quit the job and I took out the loans, something I didn't want to do. And you know, I thought to myself, if things don't change, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna come out of this program with, you know, this including undergrad with $150,000 in in debt, you know, to a job market that's almost non-existent. You know, we we get to interact with you know our, the lecturers here on campus, and some of them are driving you know from this university to San Jose State to Cabrillo College, you know, to um, somewhere in, in San Francisco. Like, these folks are everywhere. And I think back to my community college lecturers, and they're in the same position. And, and I, I guess I didn't understand at the time. But now being older, now being more um, exposed to um, academia and the job market, <clears throat> like, I see that a lot of us are going to end up with, you know, with these PhD programs with massive debt and no real opportunity to... Uh, engage in the job market out there like it seems like it seems really grim where you know people are bouncing from postdoc to postdoc or then you know get a TA ship we get a get a lecturer position 
maybe at a community college, maybe not. And, you know, people are just going at it, trying to pay those bills and just living in constant precarity. So all those, all those things, you know, I, I take into consideration that, you know, is, is this place really accessible? Is this place really, you know, meant for people who, <clears throat> who don't have that, that, that privilege to come from a family of educators, um, family that's been educated, um, family that's been exposed to these places knows how to navigate them. And you know, at the end of the day, people who have money, people who don't have to really kind of rely on, yeah, on these TA ships or whatever the nature may be. Like it just seems like it's not accessible for, for poor people. What would become apparent to Carlos, as with many other strikers, is that these increased pressures and vulnerabilities were not just felt by him alone. Instead, they were felt and echoed by the greater graduate student community. When I asked Carlos what it was like to realize that he was not alone, but in fact part of a greater community struggling collectively, he said, Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been beautiful. I, I could think back to the first, um, the first time we had this march. I think it was sometime in November when we marched from the Quarry Plaza to Kerr Hall. I think it was the first, really the first time a lot of us have been around other graduate students who are not from our departments, right? It was people from from the natural sciences, people from the social sciences. It was just people from all over, and I, I remember just kind of talking to people here and there, and I, was, and I was thinking to myself, whoa, like, it's a lot of us, right? It's a lot of us, like, people are coming out for a reason. And it was, like, really the first time we've all seen each other and interacted with one another, even if it was, you know, for, like, an hour or whatever it was, like, you knew that you weren't alone. You know that it, like you know things matter to you, just like it did to other people. So that was that was great. And and here, I mean, we're in late February, and you know this campaign started somewhere in November. So that's what like three three months of um, camaraderie building, rapport building, relationship building, community building with a lot of different folks. And what you see is you know it's it's, it's a massive pool of talent. It's a massive pool of talent. It's a lot of. Uh, kind-hearted people hey hey what up <laughs> um, where yeah like this is this is the future of academia in a way all these brilliant minds out here with you know all these great hearts uh, and just thinking about how you know the UC is willing to just get rid of all, all of us when we're trying to highlight of an issue of you know of poverty here it's really it really you know really saddens me but as graduate student workers like Carlos began organizing around a cost of living adjustment, they began to realize that the precarity and vulnerability experienced by graduate student workers were part of even larger systemic failures within the UC system that affected the entire educational ecosystem, from undergraduates to lecturers to service workers to staff. Under this banner of solidarity, the Cola for All movement began a collective that brought together various campus groups and associations that sought to fundamentally push against the higher education status quo. So a lot of us in the, the Cola for All, we saw the, the initial grading strike as an opportunity to, um, you know, translate all the things that we're talking about right now into the other, um, yeah, the other workers on our campus. So we, we knew that it wasn't enough for us to ask for change for ourselves, you know, that's, that's pretty selfish. Knowing that there was workers on campus that haven't had a contract, that their constant jobs were under attack, their benefits, um, their retirements, all these, all these, you know, their, 
their their benefits were under attack, knowing that the lecturers were, were going to be without a contract soon, knowing that um, there's you know undocumented students on campus that have demands that yet to be made, yet to be addressed by the administration, knowing that undergrads in general um, are also not not um, immune to the housing crisis here and how it affects our lives. Like we had a we had to do something to 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 grab attention and say hey. We're on this together. We all see this issue. We need to change it, you know? Let's, let's do something. So that was Cola for All. Together, Wildcat graduate student strikers and Cola for All activists organized and coordinated actions across the campus. And we started out with, you know, some dining hall actions where, you know, we tied um, our, our rent burden to food insecurities. Well, we saying, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're spending this percentage on rent that, you know, we're trying to get by and, you know, survive with food and water, clothes and all that stuff. So we need money for food. All that money that we're dropping on rent, you know, leaves us very little for food. So we saw these dining halls as opportunities, knowing that, um, knowing that these, you know, emergency food pantries are not enough. They're just band-aids towards the larger, you know, the larger structure of, of inequality here. So yeah, we opened up these dining halls and we start, we use that as a platform to get the message across that, that one, graduate students are on strike now, like what does it mean to you, right? Putting the word out there for people to know. Um, graduate students are on strike, this is why we're on strike. Um, they ask me workers need a contract, this is why they need a contract, and this is why it pertains to you, right? And that's how we really started getting the word out that that we're asking for change and we're willing to work for change and yeah we're making change and those actions were were beautiful because we're able to feed people people that otherwise would have you know um either gone to sleep hungry and probably ate the next day or whatever the case may be um i remember just i remember in those actions all these people just coming at you just thanking you thanking you saying hey i only had like four or five dollars in my in, a, in my bank account thanks for opening these up thanks for feeding me um we're passing out tupperwares for people to take for the home. Like it was just a really good time to to build community and say, hey, you know, we know these issues are real and we're here to, you know, to, to try to change them. That's where we came across a lot of people from the People's Coalition, a lot of these undergrads, right? A lot of these undergrads um, from these different organizations like the Worker Student Solidarity Coalition that's involved with ASME, like these undocumented students, the Undocumented Collective, like the Black Student Unions, you know, the Black Students on Campus, uh, Anik Bayan, the Filipinos um, on campus that are working against, you know, uh, Duterte. So a lot of these folks, the cell movement people that sleep in their cars are on campus. This is where we're able to bring them together in one space for them to, to get to know that, hey, um, us grad students, we're not just grads, you know, we also, we know that these are issues that you're, you're, face, you're facing and let's do something about it. And that's kind of what started uh, the People's Coalition, all these little organizations working with one another and getting to learn from us in a way. It's wild, you know, if you talk to them, they, this is what they tell you. Like, it's wild looking back, but yeah, like we were able to provide that for them. Where they could say, this is, what, this is what a community looks like, this is what solidarity looks like, and this is what it means, and we want to continue this. So that's, that's, been, that's been great. Um, so the Call for All has been able to translate past grad students, um, initially looking, how, looking at how a university-wide cost of living adjustment would look like. So now thinking about how would you restructure um, the housing market, how would you restructure our conversations about wages and what they mean to us, you know, to 
yeah, to, to the larger society, which has been great. It's been awesome. However, the main action for Wildcat Strikers that sparked the movement and cleared the way for a full teaching strike was the grading strike. In December 2019, nearly 300 active academic student workers withheld a single hour of their labor and refused to submit final grades for the fall term. The demand Wildcat Strikers presented to UCSC administrators was simple. No COLA, no grades. Carlos was one of the teaching assistants who took part in the grading strike. In our interview, I asked Carlos why he decided to withhold grades. Yeah, yeah, I'm def uh, yeah I'm, I, I am one of those um, teaching assistants that withheld grades from the fall. Um, I'm part of that, that crew, the grades to the grave, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so when we, got the, when we got the letter from Napolitano telling us to churn in our grades or else we'll be fired, I remember my reaction, you know, was like, oh, man, I'm taking these grades to the grave. So that's where we're at now. Um, and I think that just comes from, um, you know, how I see myself. If, if I see what kind of human being am I, right? Um, am I one that is going to stand up to, to my principles, to my values, to my, yeah, my ideology, right? Like, what, how do I, like, what's my, what's my position? Do I really... Am I, am I willing to risk my academic career for for this opportunity, right, to change the education system? And yeah, I mean, my answer is yes. Um, it's a privilege for me to be here as a graduate student. Um, a lot of my friends that I grew up with, you know, um, I mean, out of 40 of us, I'm the only person that made it out of high school, made it out of community college, made it out of a university, and made it into a PhD program. A lot of the, a lot of the folks that I that I that I grew up with are in and out of jail, um, depending on lifestyles that involve um, committing crimes. Um, a lot of them have been, you know, killed at an early age, either by the police or by other young men of color. Um, a lot of them are in jail, and they've been in jail since 2000, 2007, You know, so like this is. This is a life that I, you know, I don't take for granted. Um, I have a, I have a bullet inside of my body, right? So I mean, these, these are things that I definitely, like, it's a privilege for me to be here, and it's, it's a privilege for me to fight, you know, for making this university accessible and making this university um, a lot more. Yeah, I think accessible is a good word, you know, just making this university accessible to, to folks that come from those type of communities those type of backgrounds. Um, so yeah, I'm willing to risk my academic career for for my principles, for my values, for the integrity that I have. And yeah, I think I'm doing the right thing. I think a lot of us that are, you know, part of this of this group where we believe we're doing the right thing and we're on the right side of the universe. However, for the months of December, January, and most of February, the university refused to bargain with strikers. Instead, beginning in late January, UC officials began enacting widespread threats and disciplinary measures against strikers. These actions threatened their status as students and as employees. For some, discipline for strike activity would force students to leave their programs, and for others, it could possibly mean de facto deportation. On the picket line, police violence toward peaceful protesters seemed to further punctuate 
the UC's hardline approach to the strike. I asked Carlos if the heavy-handed institutional response to graduate students asking for a living wage changed the way he viewed academia. Oh, definitely. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, 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 yeah. That along with the, you know, having the police called up on us and, uh, and beating us, arresting us, suspending us, and all, all that stuff that came with it, it definitely changed my perception. Um, so here we are, PhD students, with the help of faculty, with the help of undergrads, right? I think it's the, I think it's the, the education factor of academia, because I see this shit as a corporation now. So having us, you know, pretty much say, hey, these are our, these are our discontents, these are our grievances, this is what we're going through, and we're going to engage in a direct action, uh, a nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, you know, we're going to engage in this as a tactic no. <laughs> to, to catch attention, right? I mean, we learn about these things through, through the contents, through what they have in the syllabus. This is UCSC, right? This is the original authority against, uh, what is it, original authority on questioning authority. So, so this is a university that tells you that actions speak louder than words. Um, this is a, a university that tries to promote itself and market itself in um, ideas of social justice, racial justice, economic justice, environmental justice, gender justice, um, through people like Angela Davis, uh, Gloria Anzandula, people like, you know, Hugh P. Nguyen that came here. Um, so this is an institution that tries to brand itself as the leader in all of, all of this. But as soon as you try to practice what you've learned in those classrooms, they call the police on you. <laughs> to pull your hair out, to break your fingers, to pretty much, you know, um, yeah, hurt you, take you to jail. And then what the university does after that is, is they automatically suspend you. So the way I see it is, you know, the school to prison pipeline um, extended to the university level, right? It's like the school, school to, the school to prison pipeline, university edition, like some sort of board game, <laughs> like <laughs> university edition. But as soon as you get arrested for, you know, for civil disobedience or whatever the case may be, there's no due process and you're automatically suspended for 14 days. So that's wild. So that, along with um, having the big boss, Napolitano, you know, we know her from the state of Arizona. We know her from Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, yeah, and here she comes telling us, if you don't stop striking, we're going to fire you. I mean, hell yeah, that changed my perception real quick. I, that changed my percep perception immediately. I was like, wow, these people really don't care about us. These people really don't care. This really is run like a business. Like, this is UC Incorporated. Right? This is not, I mean... I don't know how public this university is, you know? I don't know how public this university is when they're willing to just really just get rid of all of us because we're engaging in an act of civil disobedience. We're standing up for ourselves. Still, graduate students like Carlos fight on in the hope that a cost of living adjustment could not only change his present situation, but also profoundly impact his future. A cost of living adjustment, like to me, it's more than just uh, higher wages. A cost of living adjustment is really an opportunity, like a fair shot for us to be able to thrive here, um, be able to excel here in this institution. 
it would mean that I wouldn't have to take out, you know, a job on the side that would, you know, take time away from my own studies, my own research, my own students if, if I still have to TA. Like a cost of living adjustment would also mean that I would have an opportunity, you know, at my future, right, where I won't have to take out these loans that would, you know, could financially just ruin me in the future. Um, like I said, $150,000, that's a lot of money. And that's not including the interest. You know, for, for a young PhD person that doesn't have, you know, high prospects of engaging in the job market, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a real opportunity for me, this cost of living adjustment. It's, it's definitely more than wages to me. Since the recording of this interview and before the publication of this podcast, Carlos and other key leaders in the Wildcat and Cola for All movements have faced a series of targeted discipline from the university. These accusations were based on police and campus surveillance of the picket line and on-campus protest actions. These disciplinary actions have resulted in suspensions and expulsions for graduate and undergraduate activists alike. However, the fight continues. The strike has spread UC-wide, and inter-campus activists are working together toward a union-sanctioned, legally protected, system-wide strike. So please, show your solidarity by keeping informed and subscribing to our podcast. You can also visit our website at www.payusmoreucsc.com to learn more. If you would like to donate to our strike fund to help support striking and fired graduate students, please visit www.gofundme.com slash f slash support fund for striking workers at UCSC. The link will be available in the show notes. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at payusmoreucsc for updates and memes. And if you have any questions about this podcast or suggestions for content, please email us at colafornadreaming at gmail.com. That's colafornia, C-O-L-A-F-O-R-N-I-A, dreaming. Until next time, Wildcats. It's gonna keep on spreading till we win. It's gonna keep on spreading till we win.